You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. We've got a really great guest, Anne Merchant, Deputy Executive Director of the National Academy of Sciences. The website is nas.edu. So, Anne, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I am fine, but I think you're going to have to demote me because I'm the Deputy uh, Executive Director for Communications at the National Academy of Sciences, but I don't think that my mm. boss or my boss's boss would be totally into me being the Executive Director for the whole <laughs> shebang. <laughs> All right, well, we'll take Director. But thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, well, we'll take Deputy Executive Director of Communications. That's good, too. You're still a Deputy. Okay. Well, tell me about um, National Academy of Sciences. What's the premise of the uh, organization? Sure. So the National Academy of Sciences uh, was created in 1863. So we've been around for quite some time uh, by President Abraham Lincoln with the notion that the nation could benefit from being guided by scientists and engineers who could help think about good policy uh, with respect to those kinds of issues. And so we've been doing that for about 150 odd years. Um, And so some of our, we often like to pull out of our uh, back pocket some examples of the things we've done. So the fact that you can go to national parks and and enjoy those, this was uh, originated as a suggestion from the National Academy of Sciences, where we said you probably should set aside federal lands for everyone to enjoy. Um, the the fact that you can get on a commercial airliner and not have everyone lighting up Mad Men style next to you smoking cigarettes is again because the academy had said. Secondhand smoke, it's a thing. It's dangerous. We shouldn't go into small metal tubes in the sky and uh, and expose people to all of that smoke. Hmm. And so more recently, we've looked at the state of forensic science. Um, we no longer use chimpanzees as experimental animal models because the Academy looked at the at the need for that and concluded that there wasn't a good need for that. So there's a lot of different things that we do, uh, but I think what unifies it is the notion that, that we try to help people see their way towards good policy based on the expertise that we offer. Yeah, I'm surprised that um, this was a consideration back in the 1860s. Are you surprised or, I mean, do people think that, I guess, I don't know, I guess I just have this perception that no one really put much stock in science or cared about it until sometime in the 1900s. I don't know when, and I guess my, I guess it's just my, I don't know why, I just, I just think that I realize. Well, Abraham Lincoln was, um, you know, he was pretty smart. He was a man ahead of his times. And there were still things, you know, our very first study and the way the academy works 
um, as if they were a private nonprofit institution, but the, we sit outside the framework of government. Lincoln's notion was that um, we we could be very much part of a process, but that by sitting outside the traditional framework of government, that we had the um, the flexibility and the authority to sort of speak truth to power. And one of the things they wanted to know, I think it was one of our very first studies, was as the U.S. Navy was transitioning from wooden uh, boats to ironclad ships, would the compasses work? Would the Navy know how to navigate? Would they know where they were? Uh, they also asked about a system of weights and measures that might invoke the metric system. So this sort of encapsulates the way things go at the academy. Um, we helped them a great deal with understanding how the compasses would work, and they were very happy with that. But they said, no, thank you. We do not want to transition to the metric system, but good try. So sometimes people uh, will adopt our recommendations, and other times they say, no, thank you. Um, and and so that, that sort of has been the way it's been for over 150 years. But as I say, Lincoln was a guy that understood that uh, science and engineering were very much a part of our our future and that to be a productive, competitive nation, we had to think about those things. I guess I'm just interested in, in culturally how was science perceived, you know, in the, I don't know if you know, but, you know, in the late 1800s and then in the early 1900s, does the academy have any sense of that? You know, has it been through any great trials where people wanted to disband it or just discounted everything it said or were there times when it was really heavily listened to? You know, I do think that there's always an ebb and flow. And and I think that, um, you know, science and scientists are pretty uniformly respected. Most of the research data shows that um, when you poll average citizens, they do have a great deal of respect for science and for scientists. Um, that doesn't mean that uniformly they accept everything that scientists have to say. And I think that there is an ebb and flow on that kind of basis. Um, I think that there's a, been a big emphasis on STEM education um, in the last few decades. And that's really starting to show that you can actually say the word STEM to most parents and they know what you're talking about. And I would have said mm. that 15 years ago, that was not the case. STEM was very much sort of an inside baseball term. And I think that a lot of people see this as a way to make sure that they have, they have good jobs, um, that they can be part of our future and not attached to perhaps an industry or an occupation that mightn't have the future that science and technology offer. Because science and technology, they are constantly evolving. They are constantly looking towards the next thing. And I think that's one of the very attractive components of those careers. Well, what are a couple of examples of like major watershed moments in science, you know, from the perspective of NAS? It sounds like rejecting the metric system maybe have been one. Yeah, any, <laughs> any details on any of these big moments and what like maybe the inside scoop was and why things, some things were adopted and some things weren't? I think it's really topical. You know, some things, each topic sort of has its day and we are a very broad institution. But I know, for example, I think this was probably 15, 20 years ago. You know, again, science education has, has always been something that's very interesting to people, but we looked at how children are taught to read in this country. And there was something most people don't know, that there was a reading war, uh, but there was. And should we be teaching children by whole language or by phonics? And and the academy sort of called a truce to that long-standing discussion by saying, essentially, it's both. 
And so, you know, so maybe in that period of time, there wasn't as much interest in cybersecurity. But now, of course, this is a topic that is very hot. And so what you find is that I don't think there's ever a time where the academies is not listened to or that we don't feel relevant. I think it changes. The topic will change based on the what's happening in the world um, and the, the sort of cultural zeitgeist. But there's, there's, I don't think we've ever been irrelevant or unnecessary, but there will be an ebb and flow on topics. And I think that's what I would say, that there, we, we can see the way that the country is motivated to think about different things based on what we're asked to pay attention to. So what are some of the most uh, important topics right now that you see? Well, you know, I think we're very busy um, in the health and medicine division. Um, there's always, I mean, you know, uh, our our uh, long-term health is always of interest to people. We're looking at a bigger culture of health. How do we create a culture of health and health equity in this country? So that's something that is uh, very much of interest to a lot of people today. Uh, we're doing a lot of work. You know, interestingly, I've been sitting in meetings and we've been doing things on Legionnaire's disease or Legionella, which is the bacterium that contributes to, uh, that causes Legionnaire's disease. And there's a staggering number of deaths that can be attributed to exposure to uh, to this bacteria. And I guess I didn't realize how big a deal it was. So we've been doing work on that. I can tell you that Gosh, probably about, I remember, infectious diseases are always of interest to people, and the epidemiology of, uh, of viral spread, you know, that's, that's very hot all the time. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that are big right now. Um, we, we just, there are, I have a colleague who likes to say that we release a new study every business day of the year. And when we talk about the studies, he would always say, and that's a PhD size thesis every day, every business day of the year. So that's, that's a lot. I mean, when you think about the breadth that that's we're crazy. covering with that, whether it's about K through 12 science education or whether it's about cybersecurity, uh, we just did a report re recently on a roadmap to reducing childhood poverty. Um, there's, you know, I, I'm on the same floor with the Division on Engineering and Physical Sciences, so I, I heard somebody talking about the fact that they were doing something on unmanned aircraft systems and drones. You know, this is, we have a transportation research board here that is always very, very busy. So it doesn't sound super sexy, but transportation affects all of us. And so thinking about the health of our roads, um, the way we can look at traffic patterns to reduce congestion, uh, that when we think about climate change and how we'd want to reduce the number of automobiles and carbon um, emitting vehicles on the road. So, you know, it is it is always astounding to me the breadth of what we are doing. And, and it really is kind of astounding, you know, from commercial sex exploitation. I saw a report on that not too long ago um, to to just, you know, engineering education where we really cover the gamut. What about science that is turning political when maybe some people think it shouldn't, like global climate change? You know, there's some people that are saying, oh, it's a political issue. It's not a real science issue. And, you know, vaccines, whether or not to vaccinate, it seems like, which is scary to me, that some issues that should sit in the realm of science and evidence and fact, I'm not saying I have a position one way or another, but they seem to go and become political footballs instead of just staying in the science world. Yeah, 
I, I think that's that's always true that that there are issues in science and technology that will become politicized. Um, we are a um, very careful not to stray into that advocacy territory. Um, for us, advocacy is our kryptonite. Um, we we will very carefully study a particular question and come back with an answer, but we don't advocate around that answer. Um, oftentimes, I've seen our reports, for example, on gun violence be adopted by various groups who have very opposing points of view on the topic, but they they will both pick up the same report and, and point to different aspects of it. Um, we don't comment from there. We, we leave it out there for, in the public domain because I think we do really believe that, that science from our point of view is not political. We have a very careful process when we bring committee members uh, on to the, the work that we're doing to look at conflict uh, of interest and bias. And we do try to keep the, the activities as, as pure as we possibly can. I mean, we've obviously been studying climate change us, I think, as back far back as the 1960s, maybe even in the 50s. Um, but we've been looking at climate for a very long time, and and there's a lot of evidence that's reflected in the reports that we do. Um, and I think that that's true of whether you're talking about evolution or genetically modified foods or vaccinations. Um, all of you know, all of these are potentially controversial topics, but the science is relatively clear and it's out there for people to consume in our reports. Who funds the the reports and who decides, all right, we need to do a report on this or a study on that? So the work of the institution is funded from various sources. I, I hesitate to quote you the exact distribution because I don't want to get it wrong, but we do get a decent amount of our funding um, from the federal government. We receive no direct federal appropriations. Uh, rather, we are sometimes included in budgets that go before the Appropriations Committee, but our work is, when it's funded by the government, is through various contracts or grants uh, that are given to us by different agencies or departments. And then we also receive a, a fair amount of funding from the, the private foundation sector. Um, we do receive some small amount of corporate funding, but it's never more than a very, very small percentage of the whole of any particularly funded project. Um, we, we do our work a, as an independent entity, and we're very careful about how we safeguard that, that sort of gold standard under which we operate independently. Yeah, so if someone funds you, um... What the requirements of what that the uh, results have to become public record, or you know, what are some of the requirements if whoever funds you? So all of our, I mean, there there is some work that we do that is considered to be classified by the U.S. government, and so that's not publicly available. But we go into that knowing the terms of that. So sometimes we are asked to uh, to weigh in on something that is classified. But for the most part, yeah, everything everything else we do is is out on our website. It's free to download and to read online. Um, and and we make sure that people have access to, to our work uh, as quickly as we can once the studies are done or the workshops or the roundtables, whatever we're doing. So they're all they're very publicly accessible. I wouldn't say they're light reading. So I'm not sure that everybody's going on there, right. um, to, which is, of course, why, you know, the programs that I work on are meant to take some of that that information that is geared towards higher level policymakers or people within the academic community and just sort of translate that or find ways to bring it into a different milieu so that um, it's not just 
it's not just for policymakers and academics, but there's a way to take this gold mine of material and make it more available and accessible and and interesting to people who wouldn't ordinarily download one of our 300-page reports. So, uh, I don't know how many of the reports you've read, but it sounds like you're exposed to them quite a bit. What, um, how has it changed your perception of science or your perception of how other people you think view science? Like, What, what are some interesting things you've learned from looking at reports? Gosh, I've worked here for um, almost 30 years, and I feel like one of the huge benefits of my job is that I learn something new almost every day. Um, you know, when I learned about how many deaths uh, uh, were attributed to Legionnaire's disease, I was sitting and talking about that at my dining room table that night. Like, did you know? So there's there are always things that I find out that I didn't know before from having been exposed to the content of the academies. Um I think that that uh, one of the interesting takeaways I've I've really benefited from is that sourcing matters. That you know the internet is a is a, a wild west of information, and it's hard sometimes to know what's trustworthy and what isn't. But that making the effort to obtain your information from a reliable source is really important because sourcing matters, and that's something that this um, institution has taught me over the years. Not all expertise is created equally, so you want to make sure that you're you're dialing into the to the bona fide expert in a particular area. Um, and I've also discovered that when people say sort of conversationally, eh, you know, I'm I'm just not that interested in science, or I didn't do very well in science when I was in high school, so that's not really for me. Okay, but if you take a step back from that and you do start talking about, man, did you know how many people die every year from Legionnaire's disease? That's a conversation where people will actively engage in that thing. Really? What do you mean? And so if you don't lead with, I have a science fact to tell you, but instead tell them something they didn't know before and, and just have a conversation, people are always interested in science. They just they just don't know it or they don't call it that. But they're, because science is the world around us. Science is pretty much everything that you can think of. As I said, whether it's the, the metro ride that you took to work is all about the engineering um, or the, uh, the meal that you're eating and, and how that was produced and all the agricultural technology that's invoked in bringing food into our, um, onto our plates and through the food system whether it's dropping your child off at school and thinking about the education to which they are exposed. So once you start talking about these things within the context of what people actually care about, and just instead of leading with science, everybody cares about science. And that's the thing I've certainly discovered over my years here. Do you have favorite guest dinner parties because of all the things you know? Or people <laughs> like, go, oh, there goes Anne again, giving facts about stuff. I think it's when, I think it's, it's that moment where I will say, not that I am a scientist, though I could play one on TV. It's like, I'm not sure that the data supports that. <laughs> and that's probably one of those moments that, oh, God, can we just have a conversation about something interesting with me without me chiming in saying, I'm not sure. Where did you hear that? Because I do question everything. Yeah. Where did you get that? Are you sure? Who told you that? Let's look it up. We can find that out. There is the power in your hand to look this up. <laughs> Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you. So for someone that doesn't have access to what you do and may not even be aware that stuff they read on the internet is true or not true, like how do you know if you're getting reputable information? Do you just look for 
multiple sources that say the same thing? Do you look for deliberately dissenting voices? Like, as a regular person, what do you do? I think, bo- I think both of those things are, are good strategies. Um, you know, Wikipedia is not necessarily a terrible source. Uh, it's been demonstrated to have um, a really good track record about most things. So when you find something cited on, on Wikipedia, that's not necessarily a bad place to go. It's, it's very general and very available, but it's not bad. So it's not like you have to say, well, I'm going to check the National Academies for that. Um, but I do think that the strategies you described are good ones, making sure that you see it in more than one source, um, looking at, at conflicting information um, to see where you think that different voices are chiming in. Um, but I think being relatively knowledgeable, you know, I was talking to a social scientist who looks at the way that um, most people will consume information about vaccines. And, and she had said, you know, when people talk about doing their research, what they mean is that they've gone and they've, they've looked around the internet, poked around a few um, blogs, maybe looked at um, a couple of health-related sites, but that that's, that's not research. You know, that re- real research is conducted with very specific parameters and rules invoked. But going out there and doing your homework is important. But getting to the people who actually do research, that's also important. You know, if you're a blogger who has an opinion about vaccines, that's not a source that you could call having engaged in research. Um, but getting to somebody who's actually done research and looking at their conclusions, that's a, that's a different kind of thing. Well, there's a bunch of barriers to that from what I've seen. You know, one is like even reading scientific papers. You know, I've interviewed a lot of scientists, so I'm getting to the point where I could read them and understand, you know, 50% yeah. of them. But to most people, it's gobbledygook. And a lot of papers are behind paywalls. You know, they won't even let you see them unless you're a researcher, which is like, ridiculous to me. And then how do you even find the right papers? Or how do you even do research to find stuff out? Like, what, what is a regular person supposed to do? Even if you're not reading the original research, <coughs> excuse me, if you're reading people who are citing that research, and, and doing it. and again, it's one of the reasons that we work on communications programs that are meant to bring the work of the institution to broader audiences in different ways. And so we're launching a campaign, for example, called the Science Behind It. And, and it's framed around 30 different questions that our polling showed that most Americans were actively interested in. And and we're, we've done videos and there'll be written content that is not written in the same language as our reports, but that uses our reports as the basis for sourcing the answers. And so we're not asking you to, as you said, wade through the, the, the pretty heavy going of a, an academic report, but instead read something that has been written in a way that is much, much more um, everyday language and yet still emanates from the same source. Okay. So that's the way to do it. What, um, well, knowing what you know, uh, I don't know if you want to answer it's up to you, but let's say like climate change, knowing what you know, uh, do you think for instance, that climate change is a real phenomenon that's happening or, you know, what's your outlook based on what you've seen as a quick question? Well, I, I mean, if you look at the reports from the academies, and we actually have a climate communications initiative here at the institution, um, I think that 
they would point to the preponderance of the evidence, which demonstrates that the climate is changing and that human beings have uh, have have created that impact on the climate. Okay. And what about the uh, vaccines? Human activities. Okay. So human activity does the evidence is saying that it's leading to climate change. Yes, that anthropogenic climate change um, is something that uh, you know the academies has described in detail in many of its reports and in a lot of its communications material. Okay, and then what about I'll just you know, a couple more? Like, what about vaccines? You know, uh, good or bad, useful or not useful? What does the the evidence say that you've seen? Um, the the presidents uh, recently, the presidents here, uh, the president of the National Academy of Sciences, the president of the National Academy of Engineering, and the president of the National Academy of Medicine uh, released a joint statement um, on vaccines recently that indicated that uh, vaccines, uh, for the most part, are safe and that 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 children should be vaccinated as prescribed by the medical professionals uh, and according to the CDC guidelines. Okay. Well, I appreciate you, you know, sharing what you've seen on those two issues. It's just, like I said, it's just, uh, you know, it's just interesting and maybe a little scary that some issues that I think should be purely science-based get to be political one way or another. But uh, yeah, and I think you said, the, the yeah. academy's website on client on climate is very clear that climate change is happening today. That the evidence for it is clear and compelling. Um, that 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 we know this will affect people's lives. Um, and that decision makers need to take climate into consideration in a variety of contexts. I mean, this is all very clear from the research. Hmm. Any um, big issues that you think are really relevant and important for people to be aware of, you know, now through the next, I don't know, five to 10 years? Well, I mean, there are, there are so <laughs> many things. a lot. You know, I know. It's just, you know, and you've mentioned vaccines and you've mentioned climate, and I think we're all... Um, especially as we look towards the next election cycle. I think that cybersecurity has been something on a lot of people's minds um, and the security of our voting system. And the academies has a report on the security of our voting system. I think that um, there are so many ways, as I was saying to you, everybody's lives are touched by science every day. Um, and, and I think that the academies recognizes that that the health, uh, the economic health the, uh, of the country relies in great measure on, on investments in science and technology. And, and that um, that's something that, that we address in a number of our reports on a regular basis. Yeah, does, does anyone, uh, any company organization contact you and say, hey, we, we need like research on a topic. Can you at least point us in the right direction or help us out? Do you have any, any work, anyone that works for NAS that, Again, whose job it is to be hired to do research because maybe you have access to more diverse sources? Um, I wouldn't say that that's really the role that we play. It's at a higher level for the most part. So we're doing, you know, big studies or workshops or roundtables for uh, sponsors that come to us, usually with a, a specific set of questions that frame the charge. Um, that, that we have accepted and, and pursue. Um, but there's not, so it doesn't work exactly as, as you're describing, but certainly all the resources from the work that we're doing for those individual sponsors are available on our website. And so if somebody wanted okay. to know about vaccines, like a, just a, somebody who doesn't want to read our whole report, we do have um, a, web, a part of our website, there's a section called Based on Science. And so we, we know that um, 
people are interested in vaccines. So we've got a page out there where people are asking, is it true that vaccines are safe? And so we have said vaccines are extremely safe. Um, they have many health benefits and few side effects that the, the, the benefits are great and the risks are low. And then, you know, so, so it's not that we have a person who's answering that question necessarily, but there are a lot of resources on our website. Um, any comments on AI and uh, the future of jobs yeah. or facial recognition, AI, privacy, that kind of uh, area? It's funny when you mention AI because, you know, one of the programs that um, for which I have responsibility is the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which is a program that connects the science and engineering community to the entertainment industry and, and helps writers, directors, producers, people like that kind of think about the way that they can invoke science and engineering in the projects that, um, that they create. And AI is always one of the most uh, sought after topics from the Hollywood community. And so I think that it's because it, it offers so many opportunities, but also potential perils. And, and that's sort of like the, the, the stuff of, of Hollywood, the things that could go terribly wrong. Um, but we do know, and we did an event recently in Los Angeles framed around AI with a member of the National Academy of Engineering presenting. And you know, and his view is, listen, there are so many opportunities available to us through AI, and the perils are probably not as great as people might assume. Uh, doesn't mean that we should be asleep at the wheel and not worrying about it, but that it's not, it's not likely that, um, that the Terminator scenario is going to play out and that the robots are coming for us. Yeah, I've seen from doing a lot of interviews that, unfortunately, technology seems less advanced than people say it is. You know, I get articles on AI and, you know, when I talk to the people behind a given system, it's never as advanced as it seems, you know, it seems like a lot of stuff's hyped. Do you feel the same way or do you feel like what's put out there is an accurate representation of the potential or the, you know, the actual abilities of AI or other systems? I think it's sort of some of both. I think that there are times where, yes, particularly if you're looking at the kinds of things that show up in science fiction or that people are kind of batting around as, as the next big thing, sure, sometimes that can be overstated. On the other hand, I often think that, uh, particularly in the work that we do at the Science Entertainment Exchange, that when we bring in an expert to talk to uh, a creative professional, that sometimes what the creative professional is describing as a plot point or a potential storyline, that the scientist or engineer may respond by saying, well, that's interesting, but actually what's happening today in, in labs and, and in different um, science and engineering settings is actually way cooler than what you imagine. So I think we see a little bit of both that there's the overstatement where it does stray off into that um, kind of science fiction territory. Um, but then there's the stuff that people are, are sometimes unaware of that, that are really interesting. I mean, when you think about the things that could be done with CRISPR um, and our increasing knowledge of the microbiome, and then you pair that against, um, you know, does that mean that if we develop CRISPR technologies that I can make sure that um, my child has um, every attribute that I've got on my wish list? Well, that's not really yeah. how it works. So there's there are certain expectations, and then there's the reality. Um, but you know, in the same thing with forensic science, we have a really big report on forensic science where we we demonstrate the way in which forensic techniques are 
um, oftentimes very useful, but in many cases are, are not as scientifically um, proven or based in, in the real science that people imagine that they might be. Just because you call something a forensic technique doesn't mean it has a strong evidentiary basis. DNA technology is different from, you know, for example, bite mark um, analysis. Well, well, yeah, what about health um, and health care? It seems like, I don't know, in, in some sense, it seems like people are, you know, living longer, but then you hear people are not going to live as long. And it seems like health care, I don't know, it's, it's both advancing and not advancing and seems to have at the same time gotten better, but then gone nowhere for 50 years. Just, again, in my perception, what's, what's the perception that you've seen based on studies and theories? I think the danger with health is that people are often frustrated because they don't always know or fully appreciate the the process of science and and um, medical research. And it's it can be frustrating when you're told one day, well, you should eat this and you should not eat that, or you should do this or not do that. And then, you know, some number of years later, they say, well, it turns out that that's not maybe the case and you should do this other thing instead. And so the response sometimes from the public is, well, you know, they don't know. They one to one day they tell you one thing, another time they tell you another thing. So you know, maybe you just don't pay attention to any of it, and you just do what you do. The problem with that attitude is that you know science is iterative, and and it is always evolving. And so when, especially with human health, you have the choice of not saying anything and seeing how the process evolves. Or, or providing guidance that is based on the best information that we have at the time. And it doesn't mean that you stop there. You don't, it doesn't mean that you say, here's the answer, we're done. You continue to do research, you continue to um, analyze, you continue to track trends, and you learn from that. So you know, I was out at the um, biosphere, too, uh, outside of Tucson recently, and somebody, we had taken a group of um, writers from the Hollywood community. We had a retreat out there. And then we went to the biosphere. They were very nice. They hosted us and gave us a private tour. And somebody had um, essentially said, well, you know, this whole biosphere thing where you, you know, put people in this in this dome, it was kind of a failure, wasn't it? And And the person from the biosphere said, well, is it really a failure? We, what you want to do with scientific investigation is learn something. You try to learn and profit from that knowledge and then change as a result of that knowledge. And so the experiment was run. Um, they learned some things from it. It didn't always track to their hypothesis, but now we know things that we didn't know before. Is that a failure? I mean, I would agree with the, the people from the biosphere. I don't think that's a failure. I think it's the process of science. Even when things don't, right. even when your, your experiments fail, technically fail, you are profiting from that failure and figuring out how to go forward. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, I guess in regards to health, it just seems like, again, just being a regular person that, you know, I know people need to die. Unfortunately, no one's going to live forever. But, you know, it seems like cancer is, uh, it just seems like it's everywhere. And it seems like obesity is everywhere. And, you know, we're advancing in all these fronts. But then again, it seems like, that we're going backwards on a lot of fronts. What's your perception there? I don't feel like we're going backwards, and maybe it's because I work um, uh, around a lot of people that, um, you know, invest so much time and passion in their work, and the optimism is is sometimes catching. But the idea that 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 science and medicine can advance is to me very clear, and that 
you know, listen, personal health is complicated. Even if we had all the answers, not everybody would do all the right things. Human beings are complicated. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for things. I mean, sometimes when you look at obesity, um, you know, it's it's hard to, you got to be careful about making judgments because the, the person that may be eating food that is not the ideal balanced diet may also live in a place where they don't have access to um, to food in the same way that somebody else might if they lived in a different place. And fresh fruits and vegetables might not be at their local corner store. And so these are the realities of the situation. Um, economics plays into this very complicated, and I'm no expert on this, but what I do know is that that there are many people out there doing all this good work and that that many of us profit from that in big ways. Okay. Um, what, um, well, we're pretty much at the end of the call. What? How do you want listeners to engage with NAS? Should they go and read reports? Should they, you know, is there a chance for membership? Like what, what would be your ideal for the public to do in regards to their relationship with NAS? So it really depends on um, how deep you want to dive. Um, certainly, people can go to all of our reports. As I said before, they're free to read online. And, and that's, um, if you really want to drill down into the content, it is available for you to do that. But that doesn't mean that's all we have available. We do have other websites um, from based on science, from research to reward, the Science and Entertainment Exchange, the Climate Communications Initiative. There are so many um, other parts of our website, for example, that provide other audiences the opportunity for uh, engagement with our content that doesn't require them to have a PhD to do it. And so I, I guess, you know, because of things like the Science and Entertainment Exchange, you could even go to a movie next weekend and maybe be exposed to some really good science and some good science characters because of the work of the national academies. So sometimes the science will sneak up on you, but sometimes you can be very deliberative and go to our websites and seek it out. We're happy with any of those behaviors. Okay. Is there a place for people to visit? Like, do you have a, a big center where people can visit and see exhibits, or is that not uh, part of an AS? Actually, the, the building on Constitution Avenue, the, the uh, National Academy of Sciences building at 2101 Constitution Avenue Northwest, that is open to the public, and it's a really interesting building. I mean, it's, it, it's a, um, I love having meetings there just because the history is so great. Uh, but you can, you can walk in the doors, and there are art exhibits that are curated by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences. And um, and it's a really interesting place just to walk through. Our great hall is magnificent, and and so there is a physical place that you can visit, um, and you might see uh, any number of interesting people walking through at any given time. But just enjoying the building is is also something that we would invite people to do. And it's it's pretty much across from the Lincoln Memorial. So we always like to say that our 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 founder um, is is out there and across the street. So if you go to the Lincoln Memorial, come over to the National Academy of Sciences, which Lincoln made possible. That's great. Well, Anne, thank you for coming. It's been a really good call. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it as well. It's been really interesting. And sometimes when I'm asked certain questions, I have to think, huh, what is the answer to that? So you made me think about some things in a different way. So I appreciate that. Oh, good. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, 
quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.